Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances, whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death. We all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Peeling potatoes in no. the bottom of a ship. No, I peel potatoes in basic a lot. I think she was talking about the guy she's been dating. No, you. Oh. Down in Camp Gordon, Georgia. I was on KP three or four times, and it was nice. What did you make? They, they, they got... Okay. He just got the potatoes peeled. <laughs> <laughs> they got the, their main meal, but we brought them the dessert Hi, the stuff on I'm Jacqueline Raposo. And that's me a few years back with my grandparents, Pasquale and Hansine D'Ambrosio. Every generation of the American side of my family has served in the armed forces as far back as the Civil War. Yet even though I'm a food writer, and it's my job to interview people, I felt uncomfortable starting conversations with the veterans in my life, the family members and friends and military men I've dated, because their life experiences in the service have roamed so far across time and space from mine as a civilian. I didn't know how to welcome them to the table and respectfully invite the complexity of their stories, until now. My mother was a wonderful cook. We ate a variety of foods that people nowadays never heard of, like chicken feet. My mother had a very hard time. She had three sons and we were all in combat. My brother and two of his friends joined the Navy. My father was upset because of Afro-American background. The Navy could only accept them as mess attendants. Coming out of the Depression, the immigrants in Japan really went wild. Instead of five acres or ten acres, they would go to a thousand acres. Welcome to Service, Stories of Hunger and War, a production from iHeartRadio and me, your host, Jacqueline Raposo. Everybody eats, right? Most of us eat for more than merely sustenance, and how we eat can connect us with home and family and friends. But then, how does a personal food story change when a civilian becomes a soldier, or a sailor, or a fighter pilot, or a wartime nurse? On service, we're going to explore the food stories of individual veterans and wartime volunteers from World War II through today. This season, we'll hear from those whose lives were changed on December 7, 1941, when the Empire of Japan attacked Pearl Harbor 
and President Franklin D. Roosevelt led the United States into the World War. We start with Pasquale D'Ambrosio, my papa. Unlike most of the veterans we'll hear from this season, Pat, as he's known to friends and loved ones, did not see active combat. We'll hear later on what kept him from the fray. But his story sets a scene of how war immediately and irreversibly touches communities. In this case, communities still reeling from World War I, the 1929 stock market crash, and the Great Depression that followed, which greatly affected the early lives of these veterans and their families into the start of the war. And so now, from his home in Bridgeport, Connecticut, let's slow down and sit with Pat D'Ambrosio. I was born in Keene, New Hampshire, November the 11th, 1926, Veterans Day, Armistice Day. And I grew up in Keene. So my mother came from Torre di Passata, which is up northeast of Rome. My dad came from outside of Saladno, a little town of Campania, which was a, a mountain town. Had eight of us. The first girl Mary died. She was 16 when she died. It was Mary and Doris. My first Pasquale died when he was five, 1923. He died of influenza. And it was rabbit and Keen. Keen lost a lot to influenza. And then Mike. And then Antoinette, Josephine, me and Tony had eight of us. Well, it was a small town, factory town. They had a woolen mill, which my dad worked for years. They had K-Felts, which made all the nail clippers and stuff like that. They had that. They had a toy company that made cast iron toys. And during the war, it became a war production of some kind. My dad had a garden in the back, 100 feet wide and 150 feet long, which he had to spray by hand, shovel by shovel. Then in it, he had corn, tomatoes. He had rhubarb, which they used to make a lot of rhubarb pie, and horseradish, great horseradish. Then with the extra peppers, my mother used to make jars of relish and pickles. And she had mason jars, that's two quarts, because they didn't have a freezer. So she'd put in four or five years of corn and can it, and it would last us all year long. When you opened them up, it was almost as if it was fresh. In 1936, we had our first flood. In that fall, my mother had did all this canning in the quad jar masons. They had them all over the cellar, preserved for the winter. But the water came in within two inches of coming into our house. Everything had to be thrown out. It was sort of sad because the bottles were floating up almost into the house. My father was out. My older brother, Mike, was with the Red Cross. It was me, Josephine, and Antoinette. And my mother was just saying the rosary like crazy, you know. <laughs> It was Sunday morning. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces 
of the Empire of Japan. My next door neighbor, Joe Dennis, he had joined in 1938-39, and he was a cook on a destroyer stationed in Pearl Harbor, but his ship was out to sea when it happened. So Joe was saved. Whatever happened to him during the war, after the war, I don't know. But she had seven sons, and they were all in the service. Keen had a lot of kids that went in. Mike was 23 years old. He joined the Navy six months after he got married. He came home in September. I wasn't home to see him. Went on the freighter. He got killed in October. I was an usher in a movie theater at that time, 15 years old, 15, 16. And Tony was six or seven. And he came and he was crying like crazy. He says, Mike is missing in action. The ship was brand new. SS John Carter Rose and they had 26,000 barrels of high-octane gas put in on the number one and number two hole, along with jeeps and planes and whatever they took. And they went from New York down to South America. And from South America, they went across to go to Sierra Leone. They got torpedoed at night, but it didn't work. The two submarines come up and torpedoed them in the morning, and it hit the gas, and it blew out the whole top. Now, Mike was a gunner's mate on a five-inch gun at the bow, right on the top. And two of his shipmates came to the house. It happened so fast, he says, myself and two or three guys got blown into the water. And we were saved, so we never knew what happened to Mike. And the only thing I knew, he must have fallen down in the fire. Or that's probably how he died. So he was listening, missing in action for years. After years, they claim him dead. Five of his classmates that graduated in 1941 were all killed in World War II. The five of them in that one class. The John Carter Rose sank October 8, 1942. Of the 61 aboard, seven others died along with Michael Joseph D'Ambrosio. The survivors were helped into lifeboats, the Germans gave them medical supplies and bread and pointed them towards Venezuela. None listed are living today. Starting in World War I, families would hang a banner in their window with a blue star for every member they had in service. So Joe Dennis's mother had seven blue stars hanging on her banner. After Mike died, as was tradition, his blue star was changed to a gold one. This is why we refer to blue and gold star families today. After the break... So this is when President Truman says drop the bombs. Stay with us. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. 
Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. The First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Service, stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo, and we return to Pasquale D'Ambrosio's story. In September of 1940, Germany, Italy, and Japan signed the Axis Pact, and President Roosevelt put the draft into place, requiring men between 21 and 45 to register for what could be a one-year term. Here are Pat and Hansen again at their supper table, remembering how this affected their families and how things quickly escalated when the United States then joined the war in December of 1941. 1939. That was the big parade where we said goodbye to all of them, supposedly for one year. Some of them went and never came back. That's why I can't stand parades to this day. Little by little, we kissed boys goodbye. My brother Billy went in in 1942. My brother Victor went in in 1943. My cousin Mickey, they weren't going to take him because they had flat feet. So he had his axes broken. And he was still fighting until they mended. And he ended up with the Marine Battalion that went into Iwo Jima. Never came home. By the time Japan surrendered in August of 1945, roughly 50 million men's registration had been approved for the draft, and 10 million been called to join the armed forces. Let's return to a few months before this, in the spring of 1945. President Roosevelt's death in the middle of his third term has left Harry Truman president, and Pat is now 18. By the time I turned 18, the war was almost over. I got drafted. I took basic down in Georgia, infantry basic. We went down on a Pullman. We went across country in Pullmans. We used to have to walk through the kitchen car and then come back, pick up our plates and go to our Pullman and sit down and eat in our chairs. And they would come in and make up the bunks at night. We used to sleep in Pullman cars. And I sort of liked that because you used to get in the bed, used to hear the clickety-click, clickety-click, and it would put you to sleep. 
By the time I got on board ship to go overseas, it was sometime in the early part of July. We were going out at Golden Gate at 10 o'clock at night. We stood on board ship and saw the lights of Oakland dimmer and dimmer and dimmer at night until it was gone. So we went to Manila from Manila. We went to Mindoro. I was with the 96th Division, and we were slated to invade Japan November the 1st, 1945. Kyushu, which is in the southern part, was heavily fortified, not only by the army, but by the civilians. And someone said, I don't know if it was true or not, that they had found inland, they had barrels and barrels and barrels of oil and gas with lines out into the Japanese harbor, that if we had invaded, they would have released this oil and it would have come to the top and they would have set it on fire. Truman found out that the invasion of Japan would have been worse, twice the size of Normandy. So this is when President Truman says, drop the bombs. The British, Chinese, and United States government have given the Japanese people adequate warning of what is in store for them. We have laid down the general terms on which they can surrender. Our warning went unheeded. Our terms were rejected. Since then, the Japanese have seen what our atomic bomb can do. They can foresee what it will do in the future. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. That was because we wished in the first attack to avoid, in so far as possible, the killing of civilians. But that attack is only a warning of things to come. If Japan does not surrender, bombs will have to be dropped on her war industries, and unfortunately, thousands of civilian lives will be lost. I urge Japanese civilians to leave industrial cities immediately and save themselves from destruction. dropped the two bombs, and that's when the war was ended. They celebrated. They bought a caribou or shot a caribou. We had meat for the first time in a long time. My mother had sent me a package with salami and a bottle of homemade wine. That salami had mold on it. So one of the cooks, he said, no, 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 no. He washed that with vinegar. So we ate the salami, and we drank my father's wine. That's how we celebrated. I had a friend that I got drafted with, and we were on Minduro together. And we used to walk through the jungle into the village, and he used to like what they called the balutes, which is our neg. And the neg would get almost three quarters matured. They used to crack this embryopo, and the Filipinos used to eat this somehow. And he used to love them. I could never eat them. But it was a popular dish in the Filipinos. They called them balutes. And then a couple of girls used to come in, and we used to pay them to do our laundries, to give them food, you know. The saddest thing, when I got over there, they were so hungry. What we didn't eat, we used to put in the barrel, dispose it. And they used to pick it out of the barrels. So instead of that, we used to just not eat deliberately and give these people the food from our mescats because they were so hungry and so destitute for food. They had it tough. Oh, they had it hard. People don't realize the trouble they went through with the Japanese and all. 
And then the 96th Division had captured maybe 20 or 25 Japanese, which we had prisoners of war. And I remember them. They lived in tents, and they come out in the morning, and they would work doing manual work around putting the floors in the tents and the sides in the tents and doing the cleaning of the yards and stuff like that. But they were treated with respect. They were treated with respect. But the food was good in the army. I enjoyed it. They had hot meals in the kitchen. It was cooked fresh. It was good cooking. They used to have something like brown hamburger. Used to call it shit on the shingle, SOS. And I used to put this on toast in the morning, and I used to love it. I don't know why, and the guys used to say, you're great, but it was so good. Once in a while, I used to still make it here, the brown gravy over toast. I used to love it on mashed potatoes. The food was good. I liked it. And even the sea rations, they were like extra-large Cracker Jack boxes. And in it, they had a dried biscuit. They had a little package of three or four cigarettes, something like jerky, which wasn't bad. It was tasty. This was our dinner instead of hot dinners when you're out in the woods or out on training. I remember one time I was on KP. The sergeant says, let's do something special. And somebody suggested, take the bed sheets. And we put the bed sheets on the tables because we ate on bare tables, like your picnic tables today. We put the bed sheets on the tables, cut up the celery, put the celery in glasses and put them on the tables like bouquets of flowers. And then the guys came in, sat down and that was my first Thanksgiving. Well, I wasn't a picky. I was very, very lucky. I liked, I liked everything. After the war ended, we started to dispose of some of the equipment that was on the island. They didn't want to take it back to the States. We had to load it on rafts. The guns, the 155 howitzers. Howitzer that had a four-inch piece that used to load them in from the back. I used to have to turn around and push it in and then pull the lanyard when they said fire. And after that, then we took another LSD or whatever it was. The LSD is a big landing ship. They used to load the tanks and the jeeps and the trucks to Mindanao. And we sat up at Mindanao, and this is when I joined the field artillery. I used to miss polenta. My mother had a 4x4 four four board, and my sister Josephine she used to make the polenta and spread it on this board. We used to sit on this table. My mother used to put the sauce on the polenta. Us kids used to square off. This is my portion, and my sister Anne, her portion, and my sister Josephine used to have our portions. We used to plunder off the board, and that's what I missed. Because they had macaroni, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like the macaroni. It was good, the best they could make. But that's what I missed. That's what I missed. I was in communications. I was up on top of the telephone pole, hooking in electric lines. The sergeant says, the Ambrosio, get down here. You're going home. I said, you're kidding. I came down so fast, my spike slipped stupidly. You know, I grabbed the pole, and I come down the pole like this. The splinters from the new pole got ripped through my shirts, and I, and I got to the bottom, and this little Filipino boy was laughing like hell. I took a stone. I hit him in the ass with it. I was so nervous and crazy it hurt, you know. And then I started to laugh at the kid. I said, hey, what, what can he do, you know? So I had to go to the medics, and they're taking splinters out of me, and they're putting iodine or something on it, and nearly killed me. I, I didn't bother. I was coming home. Coming back, we hit on a Sunday morning, and there was a Catholic mass being set on deck as we were coming underneath the Golden Gate. We went back into Oakland. 
This is where we disembarked. We got loaded on cattle cars, which I liked, because we had permanent bunks. We could sleep during the day. Our food was traded the same way. We used to have to walk through the cooking area, come back with our mess kits, go back to the cattle cars and eat it. But the food was hot, and this is the way we came across the country, back home in New York. I had the duffel bag. I put that in the locker. I kept a little overnight bag, and I got out of Penn Station, and I started to walk up Fifth Avenue, I guess. I saw the Empire State Building. So like a country boy, I'm looking up in the sky and I can't see it. So at that time, it charges 60 cents for service people to go in. So I went in there and took an elevator to the 80th floor. The 80th floor at that time had a bar and a restaurant. So I was having old fashions. So I drank two or three old fashions. I had something to eat. I went up to the 102nd floor and I had a few more drinks. And then this big guy come up and he says, you okay? This guy took me inside the spiral. And then we got up there. I says, you know, I'm, I've been drinking. No, he says, it's not you. He says, it's the building. Empire State Building sways back and forth. Up on top of the Empire State Building, they had a phone. So I called up my mother and father. I says, hey. I says, I'm on top of the Empire State Building. He says, what? I'm on top of the Empire State Building. When are you coming home? I'm not coming home until I see New York. By the time I took the elevator down, the elevator coming down the 80th floor came down so fast, I almost threw up. And little by little, I walked up. I ended up in Central Park, the tavern on the green. I had a little bit to eat. Then I took a taxi back to Sloan's YMCA. Pat spent the rest of his service running the movie projector at a GI hospital in Long Island. He returned home to Keene, got married to Hansine, and joined the National Guard. When they moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut with their three young children, he continued his service there. They had nine grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and three great-great-grandchildren. Hansine passed away in April, her stories passing with her. You may have caught that Pat's 93rd birthday is Veterans Day. We're taking him to Tavern on the Green. Like many family members of those who have served, I hadn't heard the details of these stories growing up, and what always read like humility, my papa only vaguely referenced that if, what I later found out to be called Operation Downfall, hadn't been stopped by the drop of the atomic bombs and the surrender of the Japanese, he wouldn't be here today. I guess that means neither would I. It's part of the discomfort in talking about winning a war, an unsettling gratitude. In our next episode, we dig deep into unsettling gratitude with Frank DeVita, a Coast Guard gunner's mate who faced four major engagements and also shared Pat's distaste for military macaroni. Until then, I invite you to invite your loved ones to the table. And if so inclined, share their stories back with us at servicepodcast.org and at servicepodcast on Instagram and Facebook, where you can see photos of Pat, the John Carter Rose, Maria D'Ambrosio and her Gold Star Mother's uniform, and more, as well as find resources around what we're learning. You can also send messages to our veterans there. Service is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jacqueline Raposo. Gabrielle Collins is our supervising producer. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our art is by Girl Friday. Thank you for listening. And thank you, those who are serving and those who have served. Ready? Okay. 
Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.